Peace and greetings, everybody. This is David Stovall from Chicago, Illinois. I hope you are listening to Dr. Soon-to-be Dr. Sean Larry Stevens in Walk in Your Excellence. Walk in Your Excellence. I'm your host, Sean Larry, and thanks for listening into this week's episode of Walk in Your Excellence. You know, we just witnessed another national movement across the country that was inspiring, but it was birthed out of a tragedy. Uh, this year, on March 14th, students across the nation walked out of school, a national walkout to protest gun violence in America. The movement resulted from a school shooting in Parkland, Florida, where 17 students lost their lives. The goal of the protest was to bring awareness, of course, but ultimately the movement is pushing the Congress to invest their time in altering the gun laws, laws that currently exist. There is power in a movement, and for decades our youth, the future leaders of America, have been organizing to make change. There is no better time than now to be an educator in America. Ten days after the walkout, students across the country gathered in Washington, D.C. to protest again, and I'm super proud to have some of my very own students participate in the movement in Washington, D.C., exercising their First Amendment rights and advocating for what they know to be just. I say all that to remind us of the power of students, the power of our children, the power of our future, and the change that they are going to evoke in this world. Today's guest is an educator, an activist, an author, and so much more. Dr. David Stovall is a professor at the University of Illinois at Chicago and has been there for over 18 years. He is a Chicago native, an author, an activist, a keynote speaker at some of the most prestigious universities, and his work is inspiring. His studies are centered around the influence of race in urban education, community development, and housing. From critical race theory, youth culture, community organizing, and so much more. His impact and influence on the world is profound, and I am honored to have him right here in the studio with me today on the show. Please join me in welcoming Dr. David Stovall. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So first and foremost, I want to thank you. You are coming all the way from Chicago, um, and a, a, a whirlwind of travels from Jersey to Philly, uh, Delaware. He's doing a lot of great, amazing things, and I know I just introduced you, Dr. David, but uh, I want you to tell us who, who you are. Indeed. Well, um, born and raised in Chicago on the south side of the city, grew up on 87th Street on a street called Kenwood. Um, Common was my high school uh, basketball teammate and classmate. Um, I uh, came, the area that I lived in before we had all this kind of urban development uh, designation as mixed income communities, mm -hmm. I can actually say that I grew up in a mixed income community. Now it was all black, mm. but it was folks who were doing everything from being medical physicians to folks who were working in factories. So we all lived in this same space. Mm. And it was uh, formerly populated by white residents who, lit, who worked in the steel mills. Mm. So I was born in 72, so by that time, many of the spaces started to deindustrialize, and my actual block is behind a steel mill. And so we saw that the results of those, that deindustrialization in terms of people losing their jobs, mm. and then when the 80s hit, we saw another strand of people losing their jobs. So the, um, where we weren't hit face on by the crack epidemic, mm. the, the moment at that time in Chicago in the 80s where you see the kind of barreling out of many of your social services and job readiness programs and mm. programs for folks who were formerly incarcerated, you see a lot of those programs disappear. Mm. 
So that meant a lot. So for me, as a young person, the 80s were important because all these things were happening and you were seeing it in real time. Mm. So the war on drugs, the end of uh, community sustainability programs Mm -hmm. were critical in terms of seeing what that effect had on schools Mm. or what have you. So that for me, it started this long process of around what it means to pay attention to the current conditions Mm. in your city, in your neighborhood, and then how it's affecting folks. Mm -hmm. And I think that has been influential in terms of how I look at the world and the questions that I'm asking of the world based on that upbringing. Yeah, yeah. And so tell me, bring me inside of your your house, raised with mom and dad. Um, Talk to me a little bit about like that, only child. Yep, so I'm an only child, uh, two-parent household, uh, my dad worked for the state. My mom worked uh, at a, a, hosp- a research unit in a hospital. Mm. So I uh, came to know those two those two spots. My mom worked at the University of Chicago. I was born at the University of Chicago. So wow. seeing that from all these different spaces, I went to a, a very small grade school mm. uh, and a high school that was also relatively small. And, and actually neither my grade school or high school currently exist. So wow. this thing around thinking about, you know, this kind of erasure of home or the places that we know, mm-hmm. uh, especially still being in Chicago, makes you think about things in a different way. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for sharing that. And so I definitely want to talk about a lot of different topics today with you, uh, but I want to start with, with organizing. You published a piece uh, back in 2006, an excerpt um, in Beyond Resistance, and it was entitled from hunger strike to high school, and mostly about youth development uh, and social justice. Just tell us a little bit about that piece, and then I want you to reflect on the Black Lives Matter movement um, and its impact over the last couple of years. Yeah, I think the thing around really, when we talk about like now, there's a concern by folks who have been doing this work. So when we talk about things like social justice, mm-hmm. or when we see diversity, inclusion, and equity, yeah. or people talking about race equity, now it's this thing around, okay, well, what does that mean in real time, mm-hmm. right? And are we willing to grapple with some contradictions that we may experience based on what that means? So now when we talk about justice, who is determining that justice condition, mm-hmm. right? And then we t- when we talk about uh, equity, you know, are we really talking about redistribution for those who have been historically excluded and marginalized? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So now for me, it's always asking that question, and what are people actually doing based on that? So there was, in 2001, there was a hunger strike um, in a neighborhood called Little Village, also known as La Vellita, uh primarily uh, Latinx, uh, primarily Mexican. Mm. And they were protesting overcrowding schools, and they were putting their voices out because the mayor in 1997 had promised them a school. Mm. The school wasn't built. School Four other selective enrollment schools were built throughout the city. And for your listeners, to get an understanding of selective enrollment in Chicago, you have to have a certain test score to even take the test to get into selective wow. enrollment schools. Wow. Right? So there's this double bind yeah. to even get, to even be considered for it, and you still may not get into the selective enrollment school mm-hmm. that you have identified. So they build four of those, but they don't build this neighborhood high school that was promised first. Right. So communities members, they do a couple other forms of protest. They weren't as successful. Mm-hmm. Then they decide it's like we need to let the world see what we're doing. They go on a hunger strike. Mm-hmm. Hunger strike lasts 19 days. Wow. Paul Vallis, 
who was the CEO of Chicago Public Schools, left his post. Arnie Duncan came in. He didn't want the bad publicity. He said, look, you're going to get a school. Mm. So that so in the process. So at that time, what I was writing about is what was the process and thinking about Mm -hmm. what is it? What is the justice condition for those folks? Now that you have a building, what are you going to do in that building? Right. Right. And how are you now going to have people in that building who now are thinking about this justice condition? Because Lavaita is right next to another community called North Lawndale. Mm. North Lawndale is all black. And under. CP Chicago Public Schools interpretation of desegregation. Mm-hmm. They said the school could be no more than 70% Latino, no less than 30% black. Wow. So now this puts folks into this bind around, okay, now what does inclusion mean mm-hmm. in this, in this particular, particular yeah. dynamic? Yeah. And how do you now engage inclusion without becoming this kind of tokenism and another type of marginalization mm-hmm. of students? Mm. So this is so what I was trying to write about was all of the work that went into that mm-hmm. and then how young people were saying, look, you know, this is going to be a difficult task because we don't really have knowledge of each other. So mm-hmm. now how are you all going to build out spaces right. so that we have knowledge of each other in developing this school? Right. So that was the and that was 2006. The school had only been in existence for one year mm. and I was on the design team. And our work started as a design team in 2003. Yeah. So just putting that, <clears throat> putting all that in context. Gotcha. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. And what, what I want you to just share your general thoughts and reflections on where we are as a people. You know, in, after Trayvon Martin and like all the murders that have happened in the past, I would say decade, um, Black Lives Matter movement in the last six to seven years have really taken off um, the hashtag and then the all lives matter and mm-hmm. blue lives matter and all mm-hmm. that stuff. What are your thoughts um, on the impact of this, uh, of uh, the movement? I think people start to obfuscate what Opal Tamiti, Patrice Cullors, and Alicia Gajra put forward. Mm. And this is a return to an understanding of a tried and true process that black folk have been using in time immemorial Mm -hmm. since we arrived on the shores of the Western Hemisphere. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And this idea of what does it mean to free oneself? And they say, until black people are free, Mm -hmm. no oppressed people are free. Because we have put forward this understanding that if we live in a society Mm -hmm. that has actually created its laws and processes to exterminate one group being First Nations indigenous people and then to perpetually castigate and contain another being black folks, marginalize even others, whether they be Asian Americans in terms of uh, the Chinese, things like the Chinese Exclusion Act or Latinx folks Mm -hmm. in terms of all of the treaties that were negotiated in the quote unquote sale of the northern half of Mexico. Mm -hmm. So now these things, what I think those three sisters were reminding folks that it's not about us saying that we should matter to you, right? right? The larger society, but we matter to ourselves. Mm. And because we matter mm-hmm. to ourselves, mm-hmm. we won't be dumped on in these particular ways. We won't be declared disposable by this society. And because we won't, here's the type of work that we do. And I think young folks and then in queering that work, and when I say queering that work, saying, 
you know, black bodies have been made strange in the larger white imagination, mm-hmm. right? This mainstream white imagination, whether it be male, Christian, heterosexual, able-bodied, uh, what have you. But now saying, when in queering that space, saying that our bodies have been made strange, but we are claiming who we are to ourselves, mm-hmm. right? And then saying, if we also look at this from a feminist lens and say, the majority of people who have done the work, the mm-hmm. day-to-day, on-the-ground work of organizing mm-hmm. have been women and young people. Mm. So now when you look at that particular space, I, I see something like BLM as a reclaiming of that, mm. right? Mm. And a reclaiming mm. of that for this up-and-coming generation of folks yeah. and saying, and returning what to Ella Baker said in the beginning, right? We are the ones that we've been waiting for, yeah. right? Yeah. And then this thing around, so there's a group of folks, young folks in Chicago who call themselves a Let Us Breathe Collective. And they say, we will get what we need because we need it, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? For, the, and mm-hmm. the, for, the, mm-hmm. for those reasons. And that and now it starts to have us think about that differently. Now, of course, in all movements, there are contradictions, right? right. So that we have to grapple with those. But you know, one of the largest contradictions is this contradiction of capital, right? Yeah. In terms yeah. of us actually thinking about you know material gains mm-hmm. but for whose benefit mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. and what does it mean for those who have historically had the least yeah so this is i think young folks are posing a really important challenge to us older folks and mm-hmm. saying look do not forget the lessons that we put forward to you and you we are reminding you of what it needs what it needs to be on the ground with folks who are experiencing this every day yeah yeah my goodness listeners y'all y'all don't know how difficult it is to even ask uh, uh, the next question i'm sitting here listening to this intelligent brother i'm like in class right now y'all know i love to to learn um but dr sovo i i have a question about your educational journey i, I the podcast has not heard this yet so i want to proudly announce that uh, i'm going to start my journey to becoming dr stevens pretty soon uh and just recently being been accepted to a number of uh great universities and i'm really excited about also nervous right and so um I want to hear a little bit, Dr. Stover, about your educational journey. Yeah. So, I mean, uh, and as early as kindergarten, I always knew this thing. There was, some, this, there was something that was not right to me about school, mm. right? So as a, little, as a young person, I was like, what, what, is, what is this? You know, we get, in this, we get in this Columbus thing. That's not sounding right. You know, mm-hmm. Go the wrong way, call the people the wrong name. And now he get a holiday. As a five year old, I'm just like, nah, that's just not, nah, that's yeah. just, something about that ain't right, right? I mean, in terms of like this, this thing around really thinking about that, and that kind of put in my head to say, look, man, what what is happening here? Mm-hmm. But I had a fourth grade teacher who I felt like really made it make sense. Mm. She said, look, the world wants to see you do something. And they would rather harm you than do right by you. Mm. What will you do to prove them wrong? Mm. And for me, I was like, all right, we're, we're good. Right. Now, now I know how this thing is working. Yeah. And now it kicked up my litmus test to say, okay, who are the people that are actually supporting me? Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. And who are the people who are who may be smiling in my face right. but be but doing something else? So that always kind of sparked my inquiry. I mean, I was a decent, I was a decent student. Um, I was an athlete uh, going to high school. I got approached by, I think, two, there were two main instances in high school that I think got me to critical consciousness. And I always mm-hmm. credit one of my good friends, a brother named Marcus Murray. Mm-hmm. He was a year older than me. But we had chemistry class together. 
and you know how in uh, sometimes in classrooms you had these little book stands that you could mm-hmm, read. Mm-hmm. So we had we had these uh, books. We had our books in stands, and uh, Marcus looked over at me one day. He was like, "Look, man, this is trash," <laughs> and he said, you, "You need to be reading this." I was like, "I ain't word." So he <laughs> get he literally pulls this book out. And it's called the Selected Speeches of Malcolm X, mm, right? Mm-hmm. I remember the cover and everything was mm-hmm. red paper, it was a paper cover, right? Like wow. not even a gloss over cover. <laughs> it was Selected Speeches of uh, Malcolm X. Now his mom is this revolutionary doctor in a hospital. who's was talking about free healthcare, so she's been talking about free healthcare for the last fifty years, right? Mm. So he he was she was always schooling them up about you know critical consciousness, blackness, mm-hmm. connection to third world struggles. Mm-hmm. So he gives me this book, and I'm just reading vociferously, right? Mm-hmm. I'm just I'm in it, and the chemistry teacher thinks I'm all in the chemistry book. And I'm like, <laughs> man, I'm, I'm I'm reading Battle of the Bullet, right? right. So this thing around really thinking about that space, and then there was another sister named Courtney Smith. Courtney Smith, she approached me one day. She she was a year younger. So Marcus was a year older. Courtney was a year younger. Mm-hmm. Courtney approached me one day. She was like, look, you like to run your mouth, Stovall. We need a black history. We need a black history class, and you're going to get it. I was like, oh, all right. <laughs> right? She was like, you're going to go with me. You're going to go with me to the meeting and meet with these folks about getting a black history class. I was like, all right, cool. What? All right, it's, it's good. So we go to we go to the, the, to the, uh, the principal, and we say, look, we got a school that's 60% black, and we haven't talked anything about black folks mm. in our classes. Mm. That can change, and we can set it up. So she had already figured out what books we could pull from. Mm-hmm. We all we figured out who could teach it. Mm-hmm. So I mean, mm-hmm. she was on it and all. And she said, "Look," and it was just kind of a high school thing. She said, "Look, come with me." Yeah. <laughs> and that that thing around having the homies back in that space, and then taking that to college, where I saw some organizing mm-hmm. around mm-hmm. the lack of black faculty. I went to the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. So. There was organizing before I got there around a lack of black faculty, uh, decreasing number of black students, mm-hmm. and folks had begun to move on that. So I was able to see that. And then I met at the same time, and that group that was doing that organizing was called If Not Now. Then around the same time, there were folks who were doing workshops on, and I never heard the term community organizing or youth work. Mm-hmm. I'd all just kind of reduced it to like, Volunteer, like I was 18 years old. I didn't. I had never heard these yeah. of these words, and I met these folks from Detroit in a workshop in Urbana, and they were saying, "Look, it's one thing to read about what folks have done historically; it's another thing to do something." Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that really resonated with me. So, throughout my whole time as an undergrad, I was doing community-based work between Urbana. And Chicago. When I and then in terms of graduate school, me and a couple of folks who were doing this work, mm-hmm. we said to each other, "Okay, what does it mean? What would it mean to garner resources as a graduate student and bring them back to the places like the ones that I come from?" Mm. So that was really our thing around grad school. Like it was going there to get those resources and bring them back mm-hmm. to the mm-hmm. block. So. This thing around, so that was the, my start at grad as, as a as a graduate student, and throughout from elementary school all the way to graduate school, 
was always this thing around the frustration of what these conventions of education mean, right? So I I went to school for a hell of long, but I didn't think a whole bunch of people were educated, mm-hmm. right? I thought we had been schooled. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So now, what does that education look like, and how is that a mix of what people have documented and what we're doing on the ground? Mm. So it's never this thing around education is purely textual, right? But education is saying we're now talking about how people have documented their struggles mm-hmm. and then what are people doing on the ground based on what we've learned from those documented struggles. Mm-hmm. So this thing around really thinking about that and now for the last 18 years as a professor, the same thing, right? So what does it mean? It's not just, it can't just exist in this ivory tower. Mm-hmm. What does this mean for the places like the ones that I come from? What does this mean in classroom space? Yeah. So I've been team teaching a class with one of my former undergraduate students I've been working with a collective of folks, of teachers of color, who are supporting teachers in years one through three. I've been starting to do some work with a, a group of, a collection of folks nationally who call, refer to themselves as the People's Education Movement. Mm. I came here uh, out east uh, to New York City this past weekend to go to the New York Collective of Radical Educators, as mm-hmm. we see as uh, brethren and sisters uh, who are also doing work from this radical imaginary mm-hmm. and actually working with mm-hmm. folks on their terms. So I think this this really becomes important in terms of now looking at this different difference between education and school. And now another question that comes from that is if we know the difference between education and school, school being this order and compliance, mm-hmm. education being the issues, processes, skills to ask questions of that compliance. Mm. Can school be a place where education happens? Mm. Right? So now, really thinking about that writ large, and that's where my work has uh, been for now the last 30 plus years. Nice, nice. Thank you for sharing that. I, I know you said you were on the school design team, right? And like as a principal, I struggle with that exact question. Um, of not creating an environment that is just compliant, but actually educating our students to like be civically engaged, to actually ask questions, to build critical consciousness. What do you think are are the things that like we as leaders, educational leaders within institutions, principals, myself, can do in order to create that utopia? I think it's a I think it's a there's a point where if you know these things to be true, especially as school leaders, right? Mm-hmm. If you know these things to, to be true. What are you willing to do to fight back against those powers that are now pushing order and compliance mm-hmm. that you know does not work mm-hmm. for the students who have been historically marginalized, yeah. right? Yeah. So literally saying yeah. that, right? So, And I actually learned that from a principal. He said, mm-hmm. he, he would always say, your first answer to the district as a school leader is always no, <laughs> right? And he, but he, and he contextualized that. He said, "Remember, but no is a contingent answer. Yeah. So it's not no, no I'm not doing this, mm-hmm. but it's no, we're doing this mm-hmm. because here are our students. Here's what we can actually, here's what we can actually build out. And now, this should come in solidarity with young folks and families, mm-hmm. right? So you're not just kind of making these cowboy wonton decisions, mm-hmm. but you're talking to folks about, all right, look, you know." 
here I am as a, a new school principal. What are the things? What are the issues and concerns that you all are seeing as parents? What are some things that I should be that I should be paying attention to when I'm looking at schools? Now, your discernment of that and saying, okay, the district or the network is asking us to do these things. Your discernment says, is this going to be of any benefit mm-hmm. to the folks that I care about? Mm-hmm. And as soon as that answer is no, mm-hmm. you now have to have that contingent. You have to have that contingency and say, here's what we're doing. Yeah. Right. I mean, and this goes everything from scripted curriculum. This goes to everything from discipline policies. This goes to everything from, you know, how our young folks are viewed. You know, this goes to teacher recruitment. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. how we now start to think about that. So school leaders saying, you know, because if we're talking about a justice condition, mm-hmm. we, we're going to have to we're going to be faced with the fact that many of our districts or networks or whatever, whatever. A collection of spaces that our schools in have rarely stood for justice for the folks that we care about. Mm. And because they haven't, here's what we need to be doing, right? Here's where, here's where I am willing to fight for my students in a way that may not be sacrosanct mm-hmm. to the district, right? That may ask some difficult questions of them, but it's always putting young folks in the context, right? Because a, a lot of times, especially in, in school leadership, right? Mm-hmm. You start to have these conversations that have nothing to do with young folks. Yeah. Right? It's just budget compliance. You know, Mr. Mr. Stevens, your budget, your budget didn't get in on yeah. time. And you're yeah. saying, oh, wait, right? Who, what, what are we talking about compliance here? We're we talking about right literally a distribution of resources mm-hmm. that our young folks need. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. Now, structures don't necessarily have to be a bad thing, mm-hmm. but at the same time, those are those structures allowing for us to discern where these resources are distributed and what it is that we need and getting what we need for that particular group of young folks. I think that that becomes critical because we can't, if we know this about school systems, we can't be talking about justice if we're not willing to stand up to that, right? I mean, I think that that becomes critical, right? Mm -hmm. And, you know, people peg that as activism or or defiance, you know, and and I always think about it like this, this, this bogus category that we give to young folks uh, in terms of their assessment, their behavioral assessments, right? Mm-hmm. And you see that a young person is willfully defiant, <laughs> right? And he does, every young person is willfully, willfully defiant. defiant. facts, yeah. Right? <laughs> so now, where is our willful defiance, mm. right? In the same way, right? Where is our willful defiance to say, look, I know what that is. I know what that does. And I know what that, I know what that means to folks. Mm. Now, because of, who I have in my schoolhouse, here's what we're going to do. And I'm willing to take whatever heat comes from mm-hmm. whoever and however it comes. And the last part about that, not being fearful of if they're coming, mm. right? As soon as you say the, the syllables juh, injustice, mm-hmm. they are coming, mm-hmm. right? So now how are you prepared for when they come? Because it's never about if, it's always about when. Mm-hmm. So now if we know that, these are the things we have to be willing to engage in that same type of fight and vigor that we've been seeing young folks in the streets with mm-hmm. in the same way to these larger networks and districts or whoever has governance mm-hmm. uh, over these schoolhouses. Nice, nice. And so, Dr. Stover, I've, I've seen you speak a couple <coughs> different times before, and you came to our class, actually, at NYU, and we got the privilege to read your book, Born Out of Struggle. Uh, just tell me a little bit about what that book is. Right. I mean, it. What I was trying to do is be the documentarian of 
a very layered story, mm -hmm. right? So it wasn't just about the hunger strike, but it was about now with the hunger strike, what is the responsibility of folks on the design team to be responsible to those original visions of the hunger strikers, mm -hmm. right? So what is community and research responsibility to community-driven efforts? Mm. So now what I try to do is document all the layers that's in that process, right? What are we dealing with with the district? How are we understanding this internally? What does this mean to our young folks? Mm -hmm. What does this mean in classroom space? So kind of asking that question using this construct of critical race theory and critical race praxis, mm -hmm. And critical race praxis saying that we need to spend less time with abstract theory mm -hmm. and more time on the ground with people who are experiencing injustice. Mm -hmm. And if we now think about that, then what does it mean to think about that in four ways? Uh, the first way being conceptually, so what are we conceiving? What are we conceiving in terms of a school? How, mm -hmm. are, we, how are we trying to build that out? Mm -hmm. Then materially, what are the resources that we need in that school to actually engage the work that we need? Then the third thing, the performatively, right? Mm -hmm. So what are we doing with these resources based on our concept? Mm -hmm. And then the last, the last one being reflexive and saying, okay, we've done these things with these resources in relationship to this concept, now, what do we need to improve based on our reflections, mm -hmm. right? And I think the thing that, the major theme that came out from my type of interrogation of this process as somebody who was in the design team, in the design team meetings, meeting with the district, teaching a class mm -hmm. with young folks as a university professor, also understanding the historical colonial relationship of universities mm -hmm. to communities mm -hmm. and really intentionally trying to interrupt that mm. and saying now if we look at these things from this level one of the things that we get is that any struggle for educational justice is a struggle in perpetuity mm. right it's not just kind of this one-time thing it's not a getting a school is part of the victory mm -hmm. not the victory yeah right so yeah. this thing around really thinking about what does struggle mean in perpetuity, mm -hmm. right? And, and that's what I've, that's, that's one of the largest lessons that I got from the book. It's not about this one-time thing. Mm -hmm. You have to do this consistently. Yeah, uh -huh. yeah, that makes sense. And as we conclude, Dr. Stowell, tell me, what, what would you tell the, the younger you? Right. Because it's, man, it, you make me, about three years ago, mm -hmm. I had a conversation with a young community worker, organizer, and activist. Mm -hmm. And I remember I went home and me and my mother were talking about something. And I was like, man. And I said, Mama, I don't, I think I said, I was like, I just, I'm having this very strange reflection. I said, man, I felt like I'm talking to my 20, I felt like I just had a conversation with my 21 year old mm -hmm. self. Right. And, I, right. and she was like, huh. She was like, <laughs> now you know. Right? But this, I think for me, I would tell my 20, I would tell my younger self, continue to do what you do. Everything that you do, should you should push yourself to get clear around why you're doing it and who you're doing it with. Hmm. Right. And that allyship, camaraderie, solidarity mm -hmm. is not taught. It is proven on the ground with what you do. Mm. 
right? I can I can run my mouth forever. What are you doing? And as one of my good friends says, more importantly, what are you doing when no one is looking, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So that therein lies justice condition, mm-hmm. right? So that I would I would say that like I was talking to this young brother in terms of literally saying, yeah, man, you now you're in this space where you have to pay attention, right? Mm-hmm. And when you're paying attention, now you're asking this question around who am I building with and what is my responsibility to myself and them? And then I guess the last one would be take care of yourself, mm-hmm. right? Because, you know, now as a 45-year-old, I've seen many of my folks go too soon from things that were very preventable. Yeah, uh, yeah. Wow, that was a, a selfish question. I needed I needed that personal <clears throat> advice, um, Doctor Silver. Tell us how you walk in your excellence every day. Well, I mean, the thing around you know, I, <laughs> you, you make me think about what is an excellent mistake, right? right. I, think, I think about myself <laughs> as like perpetually living in this state of messing up. Right, mm-hmm. my partner, she she always <laughs> kind of gives me this side eye look, and I'm like, yeah, right. So, <laughs> so this thing around, I think walking in excellence means the capacity to deeply interrogate your mistakes mm. for the purpose of improvement. Mm. Yeah. Nice. I like that. I like that. And where can we find you? So I am a little bit of a Luddite, right? So I don't, I don't, have, a, I don't have Twitter, Insta, <laughs> Facebook, <laughs> WhatsApp, <laughs> Snap. So, so for your listeners. I have all those things. <laughs> right, right. So for your listeners, I'm super, you, the young folks who are listening, you, you all will consider me to be very basic, right? <laughs> So I have an email, right? <laughs> and people are like, some young people are like, what, for real? Like they check email once every three months, right? So my email address is M like Mary, F like Frank, S like Steve, 8837 at gmail.com. Now people are probably wondering, you know, what's the significance of those letters and numbers? If you can't figure that out, MFS is a curse word. I'll let you all figure that out. <laughs> And then uh, 8837 is the address of the house that I grew up in. Uh, so the best way for me same. to remember my email is to curse <laughs> and remember my address, right? You try, oh to, keep, my God. You try to keep it very simple. Oh, right? my God. Right. If, if, uh, if it is simple, it is true. <laughs> Dr. David Stovall, guys, the author, the activist, the motivational speaker, the professor, um, my inspiration. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Walk in Your Excellence. Define who you are. Follow your passion. Speak your truth. Be unapologetically you. And always remember to walk in your excellence.